0: People should be entirely free to pray however they like, and I've done a lot of religious free speech and free exercise litigation for churches and conservative believers. But the government is to be neutral among religions, and as Justice Kagan said, when we go to our city council petition for redress of grievances, we don't go as a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a Sikh. We go as Americans.
2: Hello and welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi coming to you from just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, where I write a blog called Law Sites and also another blog called Media Law. Uh, my co-host, J. Craig Williams, traditionally comes to us from his uh, office in Southern California. He is tied up in court today and is going to be unable to join us, uh, so we're going to uh, plot ahead without him in today's show. Before we introduce today's topic, I just want to take a brief moment to mention our sponsor, Clio. Clio is the online practice management solution for lawyers. You could find out more about them at uh, www.goclio.com. Today we're going to be talking about the uh, May 5th Supreme Court decision in Greece versus Galloway, a case in which the justices voted uh, five to four that it is not a violation of the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment for the Town of Greece, New York, to allow volunteer chaplains to open each legislative session with a prayer. Uh, We are going to discuss the case uh, with two guests uh, representing uh, perhaps, uh, I guess, opposing sides uh, of the arguments in the case. Uh, And let me introduce them, and then we will get into the discussion of the case. First off, let me welcome to the program Professor Douglas Laycock, Uh, Doug is the Robert E. Scott Distinguished Professor of Law and a Professor of Religious Studies at the University of Virginia School of Law, one of the nation's leading authorities on the law of religious liberty. In addition to teaching for more than 30 years, uh, Doug has testified frequently before Congress and has argued many cases in the courts, including the U.S. Supreme Court. He has written extensively on religious liberty, and uh, he is vice president of the American Law Institute. With particular relevance to today's case, uh, Doug uh, represented the respondents, Susan Galloway and Linda Stephen, in the Supreme Court uh, and presented the arguments uh, on their behalf. So uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, Douglas Laycock. Happy to be here. And also joining us today is David A. courtman. David is Senior Counsel and Vice President of Litigation with the Alliance Defending Freedom. Uh, He's based uh, out of Atlanta, where uh, on behalf of the Alliance, uh, he heads all direct litigation efforts to protect religious freedom, the sanctity of human life and marriage, and the family. He has been practicing constitutional law for more than 17 years and has successfully litigated some 200 cases at uh, every level of the courts, uh, including recent victories in the U.S. Supreme Court and Federal Circuit Courts of Appeal. He's uh, a regular uh, commentator on CNN and MSNBC and Fox News, and he was uh, part of the legal team at the Alliance Defending Freedom that represented the town of Greece, New York, in this case. So uh, welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer, David Cortman.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
2: Doug Lycock, let me start with you. An op-ed in the New York Times last week called this case uh, a big win for the prayer lobby. Others have characterized it as uh, really no big deal, uh, pointing to Justice Kennedy's uh, language in the opinion in which he talked about the fact that the very first Congress had an official chaplain and that that office has continued ever since. Where do you place this case in the spectrum of significance?
0: I think it's a pretty big deal. It's not the most important case of the term, but it's a pretty big deal. Uh, town city councils function a very different way from the first Congress, and these prayers were radically different from the prayers that are delivered in in Congress. You get some explicitly uh, sectarian things from the guest chaplains in Congress, but the House and Senate chaplains are carefully interfaith, non-sectarian, inclusive and citizens don't participate there. What happened in Greece you know, the citizens do participate. They come to petition the council for various things. And these prayers were very heavy-handedly Christian, talking about the saving sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So this broke new ground. This is not what Congress does, and it's not what the court decided 30 years ago in in Marsh v. Chambers. This is a green light to impose Christian prayer practice on any citizen who tries to participate in civic affairs.
2: And uh, David Corbin, how about you? Where do you place this case in terms of its significance? Well, I do agree with
3: Doug that the case is a very big deal, and and that's probably where the agreement ends. But I think this is just another horrible acknowledgement of prayer, as the court said. And we don't necessarily even look at, at Congress as it stands now. What we look, first of all, Uh, is the fact that this practice has gone on for over 200 years in our history. And I think one of the most interesting points, at least to me, is the fact that the framers of our Constitution who actually drafted and passed the first amendment, which includes the Establishment Clause, put this practice in place. And so it's a little bit difficult to argue that for some reason 200 years later it violates that same clause. And I think what's interesting here is the policy was neutral and open to everybody in the town The fact that the town was um, demographically weighted heavily in favor of Christians, and so that reflected what the prayer practice was, obviously that practice changes if you go to New York uh, or California or somewhere else. And so I don't think the constitutionality of a prayer practice uh, should be dependent upon the city or town where it happens to be located.
2: Doug Laycock, take us back to why uh, Susan Galloway and Linda Stevens brought this uh, legal action in the first place. Were they were they trying to end the practice of opening the session with prayer, or were they trying to make it more ecumenical?
0: Well, at least once they got some legal advice, they were trying to make it more ecumenical. Uh, Linda Stevens and Susan Galloway were both mm-hmm. local citizens uh, concerned about various public issues. Uh, they were concerned about the local cable contract. They were One of them was concerned about some conflicting uses in the parks. So they didn't come trying to stir up a fight about prayer. They came to their town board, which is what the city council is called there. They came to their town board to pursue specific local issues. And then they found when they got there that they had to uh, sit through a, a Christian prayer every time they attended. And sometimes the pastor would asked the audience to stand, and they described in great detail the pressure to go through the motions to participate and so forth. You know, I think they would have rather had no prayer at all. But, you know, once they they went to the local ACLU, and then uh, the ACLU brought in Americans United for Separation Church and State, and the legal advice they got was, look, the courts are not going to say there can't be any prayer at all, because there is this tradition of prayer at legislatures this body has some legislative functions. It also has a lot of other functions. It's the executive of the town. It has some things that are nearly quasi-adjudicatory. It has holds hearings on zoning permits and business permits. But it has some legislative function, and no, none of the lawyers thought the courts would say no prayer. Uh, that's probably what the plaintiffs would have preferred. But what they asked the courts for uh, at every stage was, you know, require these prayers to be nonsectarian, make them like... You know, like the prayers that the House and Senate chaplains offer, and and not and, and don't give uh, a green light to local pastors to pray for the citizenry the same way they pray for their own congregation.
2: How did the Supreme Court come down on that issue of of making them nonsectarian?
0: Well, you know the I mean the court said you know we can't tell what's nonsectarian and what isn't, which is kind of silly. The pastors know how to pray in nonsectarian ways and. Do it with some frequency, but but more fundamentally, they said we can't tell these pastors how to pray. Uh, and it was almost as though they had a free speech right to pray however they want when they're praying for the government. Now, you know, I would vigorously defend their free speech right to pray however they want when they're in their private capacity. But when they come to give the opening prayer at the meeting of the town board, they become government agents. They're subject to the Establishment Clause the same way the members of the board are. These are government prayers and. Uh, they need to be more inclusive, but the court treated them as though they were no different from private prayers.
2: Uh, David Corman, the Alliance Defending Freedom, uh, represented uh, played a major role in def- representing the uh, town of Greece or the city of Greece uh, in this matter. What was your interest in, in this case, and uh, how did you get involved in it?
3: Well, we, uh, Alliance Defending Freedom got involved because once the um, town of Greece was uh, threatened with litigation if they didn't stop these prayers, uh, they contacted us and, and asked us for assistance in these cases, and we've been helping out uh, for many years with these types of cases all across the country. Uh, in fact, there have been hundreds of challenges uh, to these type of prayer practices over the last several years, from threats to demand letters to actual lawsuits. Um, and so the one of the reasons it went up to the court was because there was different opinions by different circuit courts of appeals, uh, which is one of the ways that they uh, decide on on uh, taking this. And one of the reasons we got involved because is what we do here is 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 we look to protect uh, our religious liberties and our first freedoms, including freedom of speech as as Doug mentioned. And so this is an area that we deem important for many reasons because we think, Uh, One of our first freedoms is religious liberty, and without that true freedom, I think uh, all other freedoms kind of crumble underneath it.
2: And uh, the uh, district court here ruled in favor of the town, and then uh, the Second Circuit reversed that. So, David, in taking this to the Supreme Court, what were the uh, major points uh, of argument that you raised in, in your appeal?
3: Well, the, the first thing we raised is what I mentioned was that there's a, a conflict at the Court of Appeals level. Uh, one of the main factors that the Supreme Court looked at in deciding whether they should take a case are there different rulings in different parts of the country uh, that need to be unified by the Supreme Court um, chiming in. And so that was the first issue, of course, that there was several circuits, including this one at the second and the Fourth Circuit, that struck down similar practices, and then we had uh, the Ninth Circuit and the Eleventh Circuit uphold them. Um, so that was... The law itself, um, we basically argued a couple things. The first thing was, if you look at the case of Marsh that was mentioned, it's uh, already uh, upheld the historical practice of what's called uh, legislative prayer. And the first argument was, is, is we fit under Marsh? And, and therefore, because there's prior Supreme Court uh, precedent, we, we win. But in, in examining that out, it's not just because Marsh said so. But it's also because, in that case, what they did is they looked back to the historical test and said, uh, the founders were engaging in this practice at the time uh, you know the First Amendment was passed. Uh, it doesn't make any sense for it to some reason become unconstitutional two hundred years later. Um, so we looked under Marsh. And, and then one of the other things we addressed, which I think was important, which which Doug kind of alluded to, there was a case called Allegheny where the court said, well, what Marsh was talking about was these non-sectarian prayers. And the fact that the prayer chaplain there eliminated references to Christ after they were sued, then that makes prayers okay. And so we said, look, the court needs to address that. We don't think that was a proper interpretation. And in ruling that sectarian prayers were okay, uh, the court clearly said that, that that's not what Allegheny stood for uh, because it, it disputed what was originally found. And so there were, there were several issues on several different layers.
2: And Doug Leghock, what about you? I mean, what were your positions on, on these arguments? Uh, given the the precedent of Marsh, what were the points that you were making in your appeal to the Supreme Court? I mean, in your uh, case.
0: Well, we had two principal points. One was you know, the court Left to right had always agreed government has to be neutral as between different religions. There's a huge fight in the court about whether government has to be neutral between religion and non-religion. But as among religions, government has to be neutral. And, you know, there were a couple of very strong statements by Justice Scalia, of all people, about how government speech has to be neutral and cannot endorse uh, any, at least has to be neutral between monotheistic religions. Uh, those statements disappear without a trace. We had tied ourselves to them. So neutrality is among religions, requires that the prayer be non-sectarian. And the prayers the court had actually upheld in March were pretty non-sectarian, because after a Jewish legislator complained, he dropped the Christian references. And second, we said, these prayers are coercive. Uh, the, the way a town board functions is fundamentally different from the way Congress or state legislature functions. So Congress and state legislature citizens are in the gallery if they're there at all, they're observers, they can't speak, they don't have any business to conduct. The meetings of this town board and most city councils are organized around citizen participation. Citizens come, uh, there's a public forum period where they can ask the council to do whatever they want, to, whatever solve whatever problem is bothering them uh, within the town. There's a public hearing period, which is more formal, where they actually seek zoning variances or, or business permits. So the people who come to the meeting have to be there, and at least in Greece, there are typically aren't very many of them. There's no anonymity. The typical attendance is around 10. So just before you stand up to ask the council for whatever you're going to ask for, you have to either participate in this Christian prayer or visibly out yourself by refusing to participate in the Christian prayer. And so we thought those two things, the coercive environment and the sectarian nature of the prayers, made this case very different from Marsh. And I want to say just a word about the tradition back to the first Congress. The founders agreed that government should stay out of religious controversies. And if anything was controversial among Protestants in their time, they wanted government of it. Uh but when the country was ninety eight and a half percent Protestant um Prayers in Congress weren't particularly controversial. Now the country is only 73 percent Christian. We got 80 million non-Christians. The founding principle of what's controversial government should stay out of still applies, and we can't treat the First Amendment as like uh, a regulatory agency captured by the people it regulates. You know, we we didn't write into the First Amendment that anything Protestants did among themselves we could do forever, no matter how much the religious demography of the country changed. And so. You know, we think the court has to take account of the religious diversity in the country today, and, and it largely refused to do that.
2: Douglas uh, Laycock and David Cortman, uh, stay with us. I need to just take a short break here, and I will be back in just a, a few moments to continue our discussion uh, of the Supreme Court's uh, recent ruling in Greece versus Gallagher.
1: Hi, my name is Kate Kenny from Legal Talk Network, and I'm joined by Jack Newton, president of CLIO. Jack takes a look at the process of moving to the cloud. Now how long does it take to move to the cloud and is it a difficult process? No, with most cloud computing providers moving your data into the cloud is something that takes just minutes not hours or days to do. You can get signed up and
3: running with most services in just a few minutes
1: That's gocliO.com.
2: And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. This is Bob Ambrogi, And with us today are Professor Douglas Laycock from the University of Virginia School of Law and Mr. David Cortman from the Alliance Defending Freedom talking about the Supreme Court Decision in Greece versus Galloway, allowing chaplains to open legislative session with a prayer. David Corbin, I wanted to uh, ask you. Uh, I read on the on your organization's website a statement that came out after the uh, decision last week, uh, saying that the Supreme Court has quote strongly affirmed the freedom of Americans to pray according to their own beliefs at public meetings. Given the way this case was decided, is is it fair to say that this is a strong affirmation? I mean, we had of the five justices who who joined Justice Kennedy's opinion, two of them did so only in part, and there were two different concurring opinions and then two separate dissenting opinions. Is it fair to say that this case is, represents a strong affirmation of, of anything?
3: <laughs> well, it is if you read the opinion and why there was a concurrence. And what's interesting about it is, is one of the things we we presented to the court was Um, If you want to re-examine the tests that are uh, used to examine the Establishment Clause, Um, in fact Doug was talking about the coercion test that he was uh, putting forth at the Supreme Court. Originally his clients were pushing what's called the endorsement test is that this endorses religion and a reasonable observer would think so. And that's why it should be struck down. And so we said, well, first of all, that's the wrong test that's being used here, especially because Marsh already upheld this practice under a historical test. And so if you feel as if you should revisit those tests, we think the endorsement test is wrong, uh, and it should be a coercion test. And interestingly enough, on those two concurrences, you had agreement on the whole opinion for five justices except for one part. And that one part, the difference, the way I read it was, there was what, what I call a light coercion and maybe a heavy coercion, but all five justices said, yes, it should be coercion. The two concurring opinions said it should be a stronger, a legal coercion. So the reason I think that's important. Because you have five justices now saying or introducing more strongly than ever this principle of having a coercion test and more than they've ever done so before. So I think that carries on. But if I could respond just to one thing, you know, talking about neutrality of, of faith and religion. This policy we have to keep in mind allows anyone to participate in this invocation. In fact, even the plaintiffs were invited to participate uh, in this process, and so no one has ever been denied. Um, everyone's allowed to participate. So this is this is why there are some free speech principles, as as Doug mentioned, kind of imbued in here. But on the non-sectarian issue. There's several problems with that. The first one is, is is prayers going back to the founding were very sectarian. We're prayed in Jesus Christ. We're very similar to the prayers that were prayed here. And so that ability to pray sectarian prayers, according to the prayer giver, has been established since the very beginning. And, and someone taking offense to that shouldn't result in censorship of the person praying, uh, even though we have a more diverse country, which everyone agrees to that. Uh, the response, and the court stated this, was, the growing diversity, the way you respond to that is, is, is you don't censor sectarian content. What you do is, is you welcome ministers of different creeds, and that's exactly what the town did here.
2: Well, but the practice was, as, as, I, as I understood it, although the policy was to allow any creed, the, the practice was that uh, it was almost exclusively Christian. Does the government entity have any obligation to take steps to see that that diversity is uh, carried through in practice in some way?
3: Well, I think it does, and what's interesting here, the question is is whether it did enough, and does that rise to an Establishment Clause violation or the fact they should have done more, and here's what I mean. They looked at their community guide in the town and said, okay, whatever houses of worship are listed here, will include everybody, so that's what they did. And then when people started complaining, they said, look, we're open to anyone, anyone who wants to come, and that's when you see people coming in uh, who are Jewish and Wiccan and Baha'i. And so it was always open to everyone, but the demographics of the town show that I think almost all of the houses of worship, maybe except for one, were Christian houses of worship.
2: Doug Laycock, what what's your thought on that? I mean, Does the government uh, bear any responsibility here?
0: The equal access policy was a total sham. It was never, ever written down. It was never, ever adopted. It was never, ever announced. It was never, ever publicized. It's not on the website. And the new town supervisor says, and we're not gonna change any of that. We're not gonna announce it. It was adopted orally only after they were threatened with litigation. And it produced four non-Christian prayer givers in the first year of the lawsuit. And then it stopped. Uh, they couldn't even keep up the pretense until the litigation was over. And the bet they're making is, you know, this sham will work. We can say it's open to everybody and we'll still get overwhelmingly Christian prayers and only occasionally will we have to submit to somebody else's prayer. Now, the court took it seriously, and the court did seem to say that it's required and anybody has to be allowed to volunteer. We'll see if they're actually willing to enforce that. And we'll see if, you know, people have the courage uh, to volunteer. Non People who are neither Christian nor Jewish who... If prayers in many of these towns wind up with you know death threats and vandalism and other kinds of problems, one of our plaintiffs had vandalism. So, you know, whether or not there will ever genuinely be equal access remains to be seen, but I am I am not at all optimistic. This is about Christians imposing their practices on their fellow citizens as a condition of civic participation. That is what's going on here. That's what five justices said is just hunky-dory.
2: But are you suggesting that the court said that, yeah, are you saying that that you could read into the court's opinion, though, some sort of an obligation on the part of the government entity to seek out some sort of diversity in these, if there's going to be prayer? Well, they said you don't have to reach
0: outside the city limits as long as there is non-discrimination within the limits. And at another point, they described the facts as anyone could volunteer to give the prayer. So that does seem to be a requirement of this opinion. And implementing it is more difficult, and I fear that getting a court to enforce it will be more difficult, but we'll, we'll find out as, as events unfold.
2: David Cortman, what are the implications of, of this case now going forward as you see it? Will this case have implications for other cases that are now pending in the courts? Does it affect uh, litigation of cases coming down the pike?
3: Uh, it does, and I think it has implications several, both narrow and both broad. And what I mean by that is is, is the initial implications are for uh, these prayer practices that have gone on since the founding of our country. And what's interesting about Doug's response regarding the sham, according to him, then, our history is a sham, because if you look at the prayers going back hundreds of years, here we had several non-Christian prayers, Uh, At the beginning of our country, there were probably none. In fact, record is is there were none for decades and decades and decades. So I guess that was a sham, too. Um, So I I, I certainly take issue with that. It wasn't a sham. I'll let you talk, Doug. It's my turn to talk now. And, And I think what's more important, though, here is is that this same policy, regardless of what Doug thinks was going on, if you put it in place in New York City, you're going to get way more diversity than you'll get in Greece, New York. And that's the point. The policy has to go across state lines, county lines, and apply constitutionally wherever it is. And so, sure, some areas you may get 99 100% Christians. Some areas you may get 20%. But that's the great thing about this policy because everyone's allowed in. The facts are no one's ever been denied. You're going to get that equilibrium or that equal treatment wherever you go, and that's important. But going back to the question, I think there are implications, not only for legislative prayer because it's been under challenge Uh, for decades now, not only beginning with uh, the Marsh Union, but all the challenges that have come to try to impose this uh, so-called non-sectarian requirement. And I I appreciate Doug's honesty when he said uh, what the plaintiffs really wanted was no prayer at all, because when you go to a non-sectarian prayer, you end up with no prayer at all. There is no such thing as praying to a generic God or praying to a secular prayer. In fact, Doug was asked at the oral arguments uh, is there a prayer that would be acceptable to all and his response was very candid he said no in fact, you'd have to leave out the atheist, which was one of his clients, you'd have to leave out the polytheists. so there is no such thing as a non-sectarian prayer that would please everyone, and I think that's what the court noticed in its opinion. But I think the, the case will have implications too for general establishment clause proceedings. I think the coercion test has now gained a little bit of strength, and I think the, the endorsement test has been a little bit weaker based on uh, the majority and concurring opinions here.
2: Okay. Uh, Doug, I didn't know if you wanted to do, uh, get in a response there. You were starting to say something?
0: Well, I, there was no pretense that the opportunity of prayers was open to the whole public until quite recently when it emerged as a response to court decisions that said government has to be neutral between different religious faiths. So, yeah, there was no sham 200 years ago in the first Congress. They never claimed that it was open to everybody. But the claim that it was open to everybody in, in Greece uh, was largely a sham, invented for the litigation, and it existed only through 2008. Now we'll see if anything can be made of it going forward, if, if anyone else actually gets to have the prayer. There is something to the point about local variation, but what that means is local minorities will be oppressed. Local minorities will not be able to participate in government without participating in the majority's prayer exercise. And and that majority is nearly always going to be Christian, and either it will be tolerant or it won't be. But religious minorities will have to submit to whatever it imposes at government meetings, and we think that's a problem.
2: We're just about out of time for today's show, but I want to give each of you an opportunity to give us your closing thoughts on Greece versus Galloway, and uh, also invite you to let our listeners know how they can follow up with you or find out more about. Uh, your work. Uh, so, uh, uh, Doug Laycock, let's uh, start with you.
0: Well, I think we've covered the the most important points. Local city council meetings are a coercive environment where citizens are actively participating are about to stand up and ask their government to do something there for them. They're not in position to uh, visibly refuse to participate in a prayer. and They're not in position to walk out during the prayer and walk back in. So people should be entirely free to pray however they like, and I've done a lot of religious free speech and free exercise litigation for churches and conservative believers, but the government is to be neutral among religions, and as Justice Kagan said, when we go to our city council petition for redress of grievances, we don't go as a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim or a Sikh. We go as Americans, and they should not have somebody else's religion stuffed down their throat just before they ask the city council to solve the problem for them.
2: Thank you very much. It's is a good way for our listeners to uh, follow up with you or find out more about what you're up to. You can
0: always go to the University of Virginia website and find me there if you forget the email, but the email is dlaycock, D-L-A-Y-C-O-C-K, at virginia.edu.
2: Thank you very much. And David Cortman, uh, your final thoughts. I think, of course,
3: you know, we, we are thrilled at the court's decision that they've affirmed this 200-year-old practice of public prayer uh, and, importantly, that the prayer givers uh, cannot be censored uh, in those prayers, and remain free to pray according to their beliefs, whatever they happen to be, uh, and the principle that uh, mere offense uh, by someone does not create a constitutional crisis. and And as the court said, and I think this is important, you know we think adults can tolerate and perhaps even appreciate a prayer delivered by a person of a different faith. and I think that's the, the main theme is uh, we need to learn better how to tolerate diversity and uh, to make sure that uh, when we hear something we disagree with, we follow it up with more speech and and not censorship.
2: Uh, thanks. And any, uh, any follow-up information, uh, contact information you'd like to provide our listeners? Sure,
3: absolutely. They can reach us at uh, org, And there's a specific website to this case called com, And they can get all the history and, and what's gone on in the case. Or they can contact us uh, at one 800 TELL ADF. That's T E L L All
2: right. Well, uh, Douglas Laycock, uh, University of Virginia School of Law, and David Cortman, Alliance Defending Freedom. Thank you, both very much for your time and sharing your thoughts with us today. Uh, thanks for being with us. And we will be back in two weeks with uh, another edition of Lawyer to Lawyer. And I hope Craig Williams will be back with us at that time. Thanks for listening. And remember, when you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer.
1: Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes.